Well, we've got a lot to cover today, but I'm going to walk you through it as best I can here, and I think it's going to be uh, a really good day for us as far as um, what the church body needs to hear. And I'm going to start with a little bit of a story. In the second century, uh, the church was massively persecuted. Most of the public was calling them, uh, they developed a, a title and name, the haters of mankind. Now, so ironic because that's not what, we're, what we are. But we were called that as Christians in that time because of the refusal to participate in the culture of the day. And many of the Christians fled to faraway communities in order to get away from the persecution. In Lyon, France, however, the persecution followed. Upon the order of the governor in 177 AD, on charges that were false of incest, murder, and cannibalism, all stemming from misunderstanding of Christian practices, Six Christians were brought to trial and severely tortured in the sight of all in the city amphitheater, the arena of the day. Among them was a deacon of the church that we only know by the name Sanctus, and this was the record of his martyrdom. This is what they said when they wrote down the historical account. The deacon Sanctus, too, endured most exquisite torments with more than human patience. The heathens, indeed, hoped these severities would at last force some unbecoming expressions from him, but he bore up against their attacks with such resolution and strength of mind that he would not so much as tell them his name, his country, or station in the world. But to every question they put to him, he answered in Latin one phrase, I am a Christian. Nor could they get any other answer from him. The governor and the persons employed in tormenting the martyr were highly incensed at this. And having already tried all other arts of cruelty, they applied hot plates of brass to the tenderest parts of his body. But supported by the powerful grace of God, he still persisted in the profession of his faith, saying, I am a Christian. His body was so covered with wounds and bruises that the very figure of it was lost. Christ, who suffered in him, made him a glorious instrument for conquering the adversary and a standing proof to others that there is no grounds for fear where the love of the Father dwells. Well, a day was set when the public was to be entertained at the expense of their lives, and Maturus, Sanctus, Blandina, and Attalus were brought out in order to be thrown to the beasts for the barbarous division of the heathens. Martyrus and Sanctus, being conducted into the amphitheater, were made to pass through the same torments, as if they had not before felt the force of them. And they looked like champions who had worsted the adversary several times and were just entering on the last trial. Uh, Were just entering when the last trial, when the incensed multitude called out for their torture. At last, the crowd required that they should be put into red-hot iron chairs, which was granted. Not even the smell of their roasted flesh, offensive as it was, was removed, but it seemed rather to enhance the rage of the crowd. And after a long struggle, they had their throats cut. And this, their victory, was the only entertainment of the day. All the while, they could extort nothing more from Sanctus than his former confession, I am a Christian. Say it with me. I am a Christian. Imagine it. What is your name? 
I am a Christian. Where are you from? I am a Christian. Are you free or are you a slave? I am a Christian. What is your race? I am a Christian. What is your political affiliation? I am a Christian. What do you do for a living? I am a Christian. What are your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations? I am a Christian. What are your greatest fears? I am a Christian. And lastly, imagine the question, whom do you serve? What would his answer have been? Say it proudly. Sanctus, not unlike many martyrs of history past, knew that without Christ as the foundation of everything that they were, as Lord, as God, as Savior and King, without that, without Him as the power behind them, they knew they were nothing. It was on Christ that Sanctus relied. Sanctus knew his identity and where his power came from. And so he said, say it with me, I am a Christian. With no apathy, with no lack of power, with no embarrassment, he said proudly, say it with me, I am a Christian. It was Christ in whom Sanctus found strength in Christ alone. And this is the story of mankind, is it not? The question of on whom do you rely? On whom do you rely? Maybe the question is not on whom, but in what, on what do you rely? Where do you find your peace, your comfort? Where do you go when the rains come pouring down, when life seems dark and bleak? In whom do you rely? On what do you rely? Scripture uh, captures this as the question of the age. Now let's look at a, a place that we've looked before. Let's go ahead and go to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to start there. Guys, this is so key to understanding the portion of Isaiah that we're in, and Isaiah is so key to understanding the rest of the Bible, as you'll see later today. Look at Genesis 11, 1, 5. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We look at this story and we see immediately in it a spirit of self-reliance. A spirit of self-reliance. When we talk about words like pride, we talk about words like arrogance, at the core of them is this understanding of self-reliance, that I am my own man, I am my own woman, hear me roar, whatever it might be, right? We have this idea that we are self-made people, and the self-reliance that exists in mankind, it very much started in the garden, but it is shown in a massive way here. Rather than the necessity of relationship with God in the garden, they had themselves. They needed no one else. Us four, no more. Rather than talking with God as their ancestors did in the garden, they can communicate with each other. 
Look at what we can communicate. You ever noticed how we as a society are so proud of ourselves for relating information to one another over the internet? Look at what I have made the internet, right? We say. It's like, what's his name? I have made fire, right? (laughs) No. We get proud of ourselves by relating information. Where does that information come from? Where does the intelligence behind all of it come from? Not from our brain. It comes from the creation of God. We lift ourselves up because of science and we say, look at what we have discovered. We discovered what God already knew. Look at what we have found. Yeah, it wasn't lost to God. Rather than looking to God for all that is needed to live life, these people like us revel in their own technology as if they have hit the height of intelligence. Look at what we can create, they say, forgetting that they can create nothing without the clay given by God. Rather than make a name for God as his reflections in the world, they were making a name for themselves. Rather than building his kingdom, they were saying, how can we build ours? And rather than be dispersed throughout the world to proclaim his glory and authority, a way in which they would most likely need to rely on him, they band together in one spot to flex their feeble and pathetic power. How does God respond to this attitude of self-reliance? Well, he confuses their language, in essence. He sends them throughout the world, letting them suffer the consequence of their desire to build their own kingdoms, making their self-reliance turn into war of kingdom against kingdom and nation against nation. And their individuality and selfishness brings upon their own head the suffering that they so rightly and we so rightly deserve. As we see here in this section, but also as we see in Isaiah, we see this, that God promises discipline to the self-reliant. God promises discipline to the self-reliant. And where your heart is at on this topic, either in arrogance, self-reliance, or humility, God-reliance, you can immediately gauge based on your response to this point. God promises discipline to the self-reliant? How dare he? That's not his job. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. But if you look at this and you actually, like I have gotten to the point of in my life because of my experiences and because I know the word and I've had loving people around me to hold me accountable, I look at this. God promises discipline to the self-reliant and I go, oh, thank you, Jesus. You promise me discipline so that when I'm about to stick my finger in the spiritual light socket, you will say, Hans, no. Praise God. Can I get a praise God? This is a promise of glory and wonder to those that are walking in humility. Our society celebrates and encourages self-reliance to a fault. Now, I want to be careful here and add a caveat. Truly, reliance on another human being or on, you know, your chihuahua that has the sweater and you carry it around all the time or on your child or on your car that you work on all the time. Reliance, these things can be unhealthy. But today we're talking about reliance upon God and upon his people. And the truth is, folks, we are created for nothing less and nothing more reflection of him and reliance upon him. And so just as we saw in Babylon, self-reliance, or another way of saying it is a removal of the need of the source of life, 
is really at the heart of all earthly kingdoms and authorities. And Isaiah, and really the whole Bible, uses the idea of kingdoms to illustrate this to us and show it to us. Last week, we finished up in Isaiah 18. Why don't we go ahead and go there? Go to Isaiah 18, and we'll roll right into Isaiah 19. We finished up in Isaiah 18 talking about this kingdom, a people tall and smooth, right? And you guys remember I said that's not my people. I might be the tall part, but not the smooth, right? If it said tall and extremely hairy, then that would be my people, okay? And we saw that this could very well have been dealing with the kingdom of Ethiopia and primarily the king Pianchi, uh, who had taken over lower Egypt and was sending convoys. He was sending people throughout the Mediterranean to say, hey, guys, I'm the most powerful now. Come align with me and we'll defeat Assyria. And he was very arrogant and prideful because he'd taken over a lot of land. At the end of chapter 18, we saw that even even this kingdom was going to be brought low because tribute from that people was eventually going to go to the Lord of hosts, Jesus himself, Yahweh God, the king. And it's very clear that God is the one that's king. And so this transitions nicely into this week's text. Let's just start right away at Isaiah 19, verse 1. Isaiah 19, verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. And they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. Those are people that call them the dead. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up. And the river will be dry and parched. And its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. And reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile on the brink of the Nile. And all that is sown by the Nile will be parched and will be driven away and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish, who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton, those who are the pillars of the land, will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise king, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit." And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. There's a method to my madness at going quickly through this, and I have to admit part of it is, is I don't really like reading about people staggering in their vomit to you every Sunday. But the reality is, is this is the word of God, amen? And so we give it the respect it deserves, and here is what we look at. We don't spend our time trying to figure out when did this happen or when will this happen. We look at what the author is saying, and this is what he's saying. It is a proclamation regarding Egypt. 
What do you guys think of when you hear Egypt? Where in the Bible do you think of when you hear Egypt? Exodus. Very good. You go back there and you go Exodus. At the core of the story of the Exodus was the fact that God was liberating his people from a kingdom that was opposed to him. Okay? We all have that enemy in our minds. I remember uh, playing against a guy named Casey. I won't give you his last name because he's a nice guy. But I remember the first time I went up against him as a 12-year-old, and this kid could already dunk, and I had like a, I don't know, 5-inch vertical or something. I was like 7'2", and 5-inch vertical. It was terrible. And I went against this guy, and this guy will forever be in my mind the Goliath of my day. He's probably like 6'1", and I could probably beat him up now. But in my mind, he is the enemy, right? Well, that's what's going on with Egypt. Egypt, oh, the Israelites go, that guy, the one that could dunk before I could, right? The enemy, the enemy. They immediately think about the fact that this was who God brought low. And here again, he's speaking about using his authority to bring Pharaoh low. Isn't it interesting when you think about it? In Exodus, the name of Pharaoh was never given, just his title. And all of the, the, um, uh, the things, uh, uh, the plagues, you know, the boils and the locusts and all these things, they were specifically targeted at specific gods of the Egyptians, and yet the names of those gods are never mentioned. The first chapters of Exodus is God at war with the false idols and the false authority of Egypt, defeating them. Isaiah seems to hearken back to Egypt at this point as if to say God did it once and he will finish it. He's freed his people once and he will continue to free them. He's brought low the authorities of the world and he will finish it. And Isaiah Isaiah is telling us that God's job, one of the things he does, is discipline the self-reliant. Here's specifically what he talks about in these 15 verses. We'll go through it quickly here. The first thing we see is that he disciplines their spiritual authority. He says right there, right away, he's going to bring low their idols. He talks about bringing low their spiritual leaders, their necromancers and their spiritists and the people that everybody goes to, the oracles, in order to tell them what they should do. God will destroy those. As we've seen previously in Isaiah, and we will see again, God goes through a process when he disciplines a nation, and it starts by having the spiritual authority of that nation falling. And next, he attacks the political authority. First, you see the hearts of the people in the country and the leaders of the country turn to idols, turn to things that are not the true and living God. And then he brings low their political authority. We see in verse 2 right away, he's bringing low the military. Egyptian is fighting against Egyptian. We see this all the time in the news. A country who is just on the base or on the, the, the uh, cutting edge of destruction, right? The border of destruction. What do you see? You see coup after coup after coup. Political infighting. And in verse 4, we see that the country falls into dictatorship. This is what happens when a country stops following the correct spiritual authority. Men rise up in order to take power and become dictators in the midst of a land. We've seen this all throughout history. And lastly, we see that God disciplines self-reliance through the economic authority. The source of prosperity in verses 5 and 7, the Nile, dries up. All business fails, verses 8 through 10. It all fails. It all gets destroyed. And God is bringing discipline upon the people. Now, we read this in our 2017 American mentality, and we go, that's horrible. That's harsh. Why is he doing this? 
Let me ask you a very serious question here, guys. If the Egyptians do not repent, what is their eternal state? Hell, death, destruction. Better to have the cost early than to have to suffer the cost late. We had this discussion in our parenting class recently. I hate disciplining my small children. I hate it. If there's a parent in here, if you love disciplining your child, yeah, it's time to go discipline. Come talk to me. We've got to talk about abuse, okay? Every good parent I've ever known hates it, and they know that when they enjoy it, their heart's probably not in the right spot. But better for me to discipline my children from zero to five than to have to deal with them when they're 18, never having disciplined them, or 14, or 13, or 12. Get the cost counted early so that the cost isn't counted late. Deal with the discipline and the issues early so that the cost isn't counted late. And God, as a loving father, comes to Egypt and goes, guys, I need you to repent. I love you. Just as a good father never stops at the breaking down, he says, I love you and I want to build you up. And he continues on here saying that very thing. I will break you down. I will break you down so that you know that you are being disciplined. But, verse 16, in that day, he says, the Egyptians will be like women. No offense to any women in the room here, okay? Remember, hierarchical, patriarchal society. This was how they spoke. Like women, and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. can also be translated in your NIV, the city of sun. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. Who's he delivering? The Egyptians. The Exodus God, the Exodus God who fought the Egyptians is such a good God, he will be sending a savior to the Egyptians. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians, and that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Guys, his whole point is this. Just as he promises discipline to the self-reliant, he promises healing to the humbled. Now, I want to put a little caveat in here because I need you to understand this. Something's crept into the church in general called the prosperity gospel where people think if your life is easy and good, then you are an obedient Christian and God's happy with you. If your life is hard, then you are being disciplined. Guys, that's garbage. That's just garbage. The way to know of whether or not you're being disciplined is to read the word, 
rely on the Spirit, and get godly counsel as if you're being disciplined. I guarantee if you come back to me back there and you go, man, this is happening, and I go, great, do you have any unrepentant sin? No, I've searched my heart, and I don't think so. Are you loving your family? Yeah. Are you loving Jesus? Yeah, I'm just, I'm, yeah. Then you know what? Your brokenness is called life. And there's something called sin that happened a long time ago that's rolled on downhill and you just got sideswiped by it. Search your heart. Know yourself. Understand these things. Find any wicked way and repent from it. But if not, know that you're a sinner saved by grace and let's walk through this together. But I also see the other side, guys. I see people all the time dismissing something hard in their life and going, well, this can't be God because, you know, he's not a God who disciplines. Well, yes, he is. So we got to search ourselves. That's why it's so important. Search the Word. Search the Spirit. And ask. Ask for godly counsel. Because I don't want you guys running off in a direction where you're like, this is always this and this is always that. No, that's not how it works. But let's get back to our main point here. God promises healing to the humbled. Verse 22 captures perfectly the contrast between these two sections. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. Interesting wording. See, repent in the Bible, especially the word in the Hebrew, it always means return. What that means is we've started off life. Yes, we are sinners with original sin, but we are gods and we have a relationship with him. He wants a relationship with us. And as we grow, we turn away from him and we start following other things. That's why Proverbs says, for the Christian parent who raises their child in the ways of God, when they're old, they will not stray far from them. What that means is, is start early with your kids. Family worship. Hint, hint, family worship. Start early with them. Guide them towards Jesus. They may still choose to walk away from the Lord. It's not assured. But they have a whole lot better chance at just continuing to follow God. They won't ever have to so return to him in such a massive way. They'll have moments where they turn back to him because their heart is sinful. But that's how we want to raise our kids. And this is what's throughout the Bible, this understanding of of striking and healing, not for abuse. God doesn't find this fun, but because this is how he has to work with us. Hosea 6, 1 through 2 says, Come, Hosea says to the people of Israel, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. To be a loving, just God, he has to deal with our sin in the here and now. He's died for it, yes, but he wants to bring the eternal into the present. He wants to help us be healed now. And so the striking and healing will be the ultimate end for the self-reliant kingdoms of the world, as well as the individuals in them. But for those that are humbled, those that say, Lord, I desire you to discipline me so that I can turn back to you, he will heal. And we could spend a ton of time comparing and contrasting these two sections. And you might want to do that as homework. Go home and compare the two. For example, right at the beginning, there's a fear of the Lord in both groups. One is, God, don't hit me. And the other one is, God, I know this is for my good. Please, I fear you and reverence you, please. Okay? There's a compare and contrast that goes on that we could spend the whole time going through. But for the sake of our time and our point today, I want you to look at two specific items here that I believe are small pictures of God's greater plan that give us a clue to God's heart and the future that awaits for us. Here's the first one. We will see a movement toward restored unity. Okay, so if you're writing down notes, you can make a sub-point here. A movement toward restored unity. A movement towards restored unity. 
Now, again, because we live in a very prophecy-centric culture in America, we all want to be in the know and have the idea. We read these things about like, oh, there's going to be five cities, and they're going to speak the same language. And we go, where is that? When will that be? How will that work? Don't waste your time. Pull back and go, okay, let's think about what is he trying to say here? Here's what he's trying to say. What was the natural consequence, question and answer time, what was the natural consequence for humanity at the Tower of Babel in regard to their languages when they became self-reliant? What was the natural consequence? What did he do to their languages? He changed them. Because they became self-reliant, he said, I'm going to confuse you and I'm going to remove your language, languages. Look at what it says here in verse 18. In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan. Who's that? The Hebrews, God's people, and they speak one language. What is God trying to get across through Isaiah here? Is there is a movement toward restored unity. Even in Egypt, there will be one language. Why? Because in that one language, all the earth will be worshiping the same God. That's what he's trying to say. Eventually, there will be full restoration. That which was broken will now be healed. Now, this is the cool part for us as Christians sitting in 2017. We haven't come to that point yet, but we can look back with 2020 hindsight. What happened when Jesus established his kingdom in the church, guys? You guys all know this part of the story. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. That word is glossa in the Greek. It means languages. They spoke in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. Unity. Every nation. Under heaven. Authority under heaven. Got it? And at this sound, they came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Same word in the Greek, by the way. Okay, glossa, as translated as tongues earlier. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Same word, glossa. When we talk about the kingdom of God being inaugurated but not fully present, we see it in Scripture. God says, Okay, we got the breaking apart of languages, and I promise in the future there will be full restoration. And Jesus comes, and what does he do? He starts the process. Inauguration of the kingdom. It's coming fully. But guys, right now, I got one language for you, and it's called the language of the gospel. And I will, by my spirit, give you gifts in which you can grant that gospel to other people by speaking in other tongues to other people. It's amazing. It's the inauguration of the kingdom. Secondly, we see not only a movement toward restore unity, we see a movement towards a global kingdom. A global kingdom. What do we see here? That it starts in the heart of Egypt. There's a place where they worship. And then look at verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians, and then Israel will be added to it. And then all these groups that are totally at odds in Isaiah 19. The end of the section, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. We see God here bringing all of these people together in these in that day statements. We see that for the proclamation of God to occur, a highway has to be made. Do you know what happened when the Christian church first started? All these slaves were the primary people that were the Christians. And they were sent throughout the Roman Empire. You know how? Because of their highways. 
They were the first people to ever have highways. And because of those highways and byways, the slaves, the, the broken down, the oppressed, went throughout the world and took the gospel of God to the rest of the world. What do we see Jesus commanding his people to go and do in Acts 1.8, right before the filling of the Spirit? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We see the same plan given through Isaiah here is the same thing Jesus told us. Start simple. Start in your home. Go to your neighborhood, your city, your state, your country, out to the ends of the earth. But for this to work, it can't be the globalist sentiment of the day. It has to be based upon the reliance upon Jesus Christ, the King. And in the grand story of Scripture, that, uh, uh, that God's plan for rolling out his kingdom is initiated. It's just not complete yet. How can we be assured of this? How can we be assured that this is his plan and this will happen? Well, we go into chapter 20, and we see this. We've talked about this a lot. That Isaiah will intersperse in his writings things that happen immediately and things that happen long term. And so Isaiah 20 starts this. Look at Isaiah 20. One of the weirdest stories in the Bible. Okay? In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, that's in Philistia, At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist. In other words, drop your drawers. Not kidding. And take off your sandals from your feet. You don't even get shoes. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Now, your NIVs are trying to pull back on this. Guys, it is absolutely nakedness. Okay? Dude walked around for three years naked. Now, this is an amazing time of year. I love this time of year right now because as you drive around town, especially in Kaiser, shout out to Kaiser, you see the people standing out the tax offices and they're wearing the amazing costumes. The Statue of Liberty, the Uncle Sam, right? If you're one of those people, I'm really sorry, but I got to make fun of it, okay? Right? If you need pictures, when I was like 13, I was a California raisin for Halloween. So tit for tat, we can share the pictures, right? But it's weird, okay? You got the Statue of Liberty costume. That would be bad enough, Number one, because they don't make those costumes in six foot ten. And number two, because it's just kind of wacky, right? Can you imagine, though, getting asked by your boss to go wander around nude for three years? Right? I'm sure that would get some calls, right? Doing your taxes! Okay? Don't go try that. Do not say Hans told you to go do that. But this is what's going on. His boss said... Go walk around naked. Why? Why would you make Isaiah do this? 20 verse 3. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Why did he have to walk around like that? Because his statement was, The kingdoms you tried to go for to help, or for help, Judah, Egypt, and Cush, or Ethiopia, that was part of Egypt at that time. Those guys you went to, they're not strong enough. You can't rely not only on yourselves, but on a false alliance with a weak power. 
So he walked around naked in order to show them, you will be carried away, chained and nude as captives to Assyria. And in 701, just a mere potentially 10 years later, in prophetic perfect tense, meaning it happened, so we know this, uh, we know that he was being given authority by God to say, yep, this invasion is going to happen. So guess what? When I promise you striking and healing that leads to ultimate restoration, you can take that to the bank. See, when we look at these stories, they speak an amazing story to us, not just in little pieces, but in the whole. And we know and can be assured that God's plan will be carried out. And guys, God's plan has never, ever been destruction. It has always been restoration. Why is there destruction? Jesus said in John 3, those that don't believe are condemned already because they just don't submit. They're making their choice. But I came to save, he says, to restore. And so we can be assured of that. And as we look at this, we can be assured of two two more points here. First, this. The kingdom of the self-reliant will fall. And guys, you can put this on both a large level for kingdoms of the world, but also the individual kingdoms that you and I carry around day to day with us and attempt to build. The kingdom of the self-reliant will fall. And we'll see as we go through this last part here, and it's a big section, so don't get your hopes up. I'm not done for a while here. As we move through this, you're going to see the kingdom view, but then he's also going to zoom down into an individual to show us that we can have our own individual kingdoms. In Isaiah 21, we start here, and we see that we've come full circle back to where we started in this big section of Isaiah 13 through 23. We're talking about the kingdom of Babylon. But we see something very interesting here in verse 1. It actually doesn't say Babylon specifically. It gives it a nickname, which I'll touch on in a second. Let's look at Isaiah 21, verse 1. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused I bring to an end. Therefore, Isaiah says, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, said a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw it cried out. Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what have I heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. Now, the story here immediately, as you can read in 2 Kings 18 through 20, we don't have time to go through it today, but you can write it down, 2 Kings chapter 18 through 20. This is fast forwarded into the future beyond Assyria, and Assyria has actually been brought low. 
And the new king, Hezekiah, is reaching out to Babylon to make a, a connection and alliance with Babylon. And he's excited and he's ready to be holding on with Babylon to fight anyone else. And he thinks this is going to be what he relies on. And yet Isaiah is told, it's not going to work. Babylon is going to fall. And so there are many opinions on this section that go beyond just that literal understanding about what this is. But it's interesting, the statement, wilderness of the sea, right in verse 1, I believe, and a lot of commentators believe, that this could be speaking symbolically. And I'll show you why in a second. This idea of wilderness of the sea to the Jews, the sea is the place out of which all chaos comes, and it often symbolizes to the Jews the Gentile nations. And the wilderness is the place where chaos reigns. It is those who are in the wilderness, not in the promised land, meaning the nations of the world. And so I believe, again, just as with chapter 13, for those of you that were here and remember that, Babylon here is used as a symbol to speak of what will happen to the nations of the world at the end of days. And using this symbolism, we can understand Revelation, what will happen in the end of days, much, much better. So let's turn to Revelation and sit there for a minute. Okay? Revelation 13. And I realize that I am giving you a ton of info today, so hopefully you'll go back and listen to it and go through your notes. But there's a specific spot I want to get to here because all this will be pulled together. Revelation 13, verse 1. Tons of symbolism in Revelation, guys. Tons of it. Revelation 13, 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Okay, guys, I wish I had hours to go into this, but here's what this means. It's using imagery from the book of Daniel in which Daniel says each of the nations of the world, starting with uh, the Babylonians and then the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, they're symbolized by these animals. And the beast that rises up here in chapter 13 is the combination, the spirit of all of these kingdoms together. It is not necessarily, it might be, but not necessarily speaking of one specific kingdom in the future. It is speaking of the kingdoms of the world that grow up out of the Gentile nations. And they have various names, but they have tons of power given over to them by the kingdom of darkness. And if we take this understanding, let's fast forward a little bit to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. And we see a little bit more information about this kingdom of darkness, the spiritual peace that sits behind these kingdoms. Revelation 17, 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, many waters, that's the Gentile nations, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. You'll see that used as a symbolism throughout the word, whoredom, meaning you're involving yourself in pagan uh, religion. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. The power of satanic realm and of the power of the kingdom of darkness. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Same symbolism, guys. 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, if I've completely lost you, let me get you back in here. In other words, all of this symbolism is meant to speak of this. The kingdoms of the earth are backed by a power of the kingdom of darkness and have intimately connected themselves with this religion of falsehood where God is not king. And that combination, that kingdom backed by darkness is symbolized throughout the word as Babylon. So see how this gives us an understanding of what's being talked about back in Isaiah. This idea of Babylon being brought low, fallen, fallen is Babylon. It's speaking of the fact that one day God promises us he will bring the authorities of the nations and the authorities of the self-reliant people low. And we see this right away in Revelation 18. Look at Revelation 18.1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. Verse 3, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Look at Revelation 19.1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Guys, if I can get many of you in here who are so keen on prophecy, and that's not a bad thing, guys, but when you're so focused on figuring out who these kingdoms are and who these players are, and i got to read the Left Behind series five more times to get it all down, right? Stop it. Please, please, please stop it because you're missing the point. The point is, is that Jesus will reign and no one else will. Jesus is Lord, so therefore I am not. Jesus is Lord, so therefore Satan is not. And while we must put ourselves under the civic and civil authority of the government that we live in, Jesus is Lord, and ultimately, they are not either. This should not lead us to anarchy, but it definitely should lead us to an understanding that one day, the kingdom of God will be restored and all self-reliance, all self-reliance will be destroyed. And so we cry out. We cry out and we ask, God, how long? Does anybody else in here cry out, how long? Do you ever wake up in the morning and look at the world and go, how long, Lord? Go back to Isaiah and you'll see what he says. Isaiah 21. Verse 11. The oracle concerning Duma. One is calling to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? And the watchman says, Morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. This is what God says. It'll happen. Wait for it. It's assured. Wait for it. This oracle is here for the 
specific purpose of saying, guys, Babylon will fall. You be under the authority of Jesus. He goes on in verses 13 through 17 to speak of another oracle about Arabia and the Dedanites. For the sake of time, I'm honestly going to just step through it. And here's why. This was another oracle that almost every commentator agrees it happened within the time period of Isaiah to give credence to everything else he's saying. We have no historical record of it. We actually have no idea what 13 through 17 mean, and so I'm going to leave it alone. You can read it, see what it says, but let's move into 22. He steps into 22 and he says, The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up? All of you to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. You're slain or not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see to him or see him who planned it long ago. And so in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die says the Lord God of hosts. What is happening here? Well, this section of Scripture here is speaking of this fact that the kingdom of the self-reliant will fall, and God is so assured of this that even Jerusalem itself, Judah itself, God's treasured people, they, because they are self-reliant, they will fall as well. They are the ones referred to here as the valley of vision. And the situation that is outlined here, I'll give it to you very quickly. It comes from 1 Kings 18 through 20. And again, you can read this on your own, but we don't have time this morning to go through it in depth, but I'll give it to you in cliff notes. Assyria was knocking down the walls of Judah after defeating most of all the groups around them. And Hezekiah is literally freaking out, wondering what are we going to do? He does everything he can. He goes to the forest, where it says the house of the forest, and he builds tons of weapons. And he goes to the pool of Siloam, okay? The pool that was the water source for Jerusalem. He says, I got to get this inside the walls. And so he builds something called the Tunnel of Hezekiah, Hezekiah's Tunnel. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you've gone through it uh, probably on one of your tours. They actually built a tunnel to get all the water inside. And he did all these things and they celebrated and got excited. We did it. Look at what it says there at the end of verse 11. But you did not look to him who did it. See, they went, we built a tunnel to get the water inside the the gates. But they never asked, who put the water near to our city in the first place? We built all sorts of tools and weapons out of the trees of the house of the forest. But they never asked, who planted the forest in the first place? 
They never looked to the one that was ultimately responsible for their salvation. They looked to themselves. They were self-reliant. Now, Hezekiah gets talked all sorts of smack to in these three chapters. And he freaks out again and says, they're still going to come upon us. And Isaiah says, chill out. Hezekiah, calm down. It's going to be okay. And Assyria makes a fatal mistake. They, in their trash talking, step up and they actually don't just trash talk about Jerusalem. They actually trash talk to God. And so God does this. This is at the end of that story. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhad and his son reigned in his place. In other words, God will reign. And the kingdoms of the self-reliant will be brought low. And so Isaiah shows up here in Isaiah 22 saying, you guys think it was you, but it was all God. You are not self-reliant. And even though you are the chosen people of God, if you walk in self-reliance, you will be disciplined. And your kingdom will be brought low. And to make this point super clear, not just to the kingdoms, but to the individuals, he zeroes in on one of the leaders of the kingdom of Judah of that day. Take a look at Isaiah twenty-two fifteen. His name is Shebna. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household. He was in essence kind of the CFO, the lieutenant of the government of Hezekiah. And say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man, big man. He will, seize from, uh, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. He makes this point super clear to this guy who thought he was the man. The strong man, the gibor in Hebrew, the strong man. He had a fancy tomb that he was creating for when he died. He had fancy cars, chariots. He was super power hungry, and God said to him, you're self-reliant, you're going down. Now, I find this super interesting because Isaiah has zoomed in from the kingdom down to the individual, as he's done before, but he's never zoomed in on someone who is not a king. This man is simply a servant in the king's court. And what's interesting is I believe he does this because he's taken us from the kingdom, the self-reliant will fall, down to the individual, the self-reliant will fall. And as he did earlier with Egypt, he's going to compare it and say, but the humble will be raised up because the humble belong to the kingdom of God. This is the last point you can write down. The kingdom of God will remain secure forever. If you feel uneasy, ask yourself, am I being self-reliant? Am I relying only upon myself and the kingdom that I've built? Because, guys, the kingdom of God that is full of his people, that is full of the humbled, that is full of those who cry out and say, my only identity is I am a Christian. You need know nothing else about me. I am a believer and a follower and a disciple and a submitted believer of Jesus Christ. To those people, this kingdom of God will remain secure forever. And he says this by contrasting Shebna, who we just read about, the self-reliant, 
with a guy named Eliakim, or in the Hebrew, Eliakim. And this is, there's a reason this is important. Look at what it says there. Verse 20. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken." Now, you're going to hear different commentaries on this, and you might even read this and go, Hans, it says it's going to be cut off. What are we talking about remaining secure forever? I want to give you a few things here, and if I've lost you because I've gone so super fast, and I acknowledge that, and I'm sorry, but if I've lost you, zone in here. Tune in, okay? Because this is huge, and this is our last major section. The name Eliakim, or El-Yakim, means this. God, Yahweh, Arise. Eliakum means to arise. And he's the son of Kilkiyahu in the Hebrew, which means the inheritance of Yahweh. And this man, who is a picture for some weird reason here of something, gets robed and gets a sash of power on him, gains the authority bears the responsibility of the keys of the kingdom and therefore can open and none shall shut and shut and none can open. And he will be secured by God, so secure it will be like a tent peg into the wall that's used by the entire kingdom to be secure. He will be a throne of honor to his father's house and the whole operation of the household of God will hang upon him. And even the smallest of vessels, the least important of vessels, will rely upon this one. The odd news is that at the very end, it says he will be cut off in that day, for the Lord has spoken. Eliakim's life and authority would end. But could it be, and I am just suggesting this, could it be that God was speaking of something through Isaiah here? That there would be one who, like Eliakim, would be cut off, but because he is the better than Eliakim. The God that arises. The God that resurrects so that he could reign forever and the household of his father would gain honor by his throne. And he would secure never to be cut off again. Guys, the only place you ever see this statement of one who opens and none shall shut ever used again is here. In Revelation 1, and then in Revelation 3. And notice the comparisons to Eliakim. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The robe, the sash, the authority. In Revelation 3, or excuse me, in Revelation 1, 17, it says this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And Revelation 3 says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The Apostle John, the writer of Revelation, hearkens back here to Isaiah for a reason, and I don't know fully what that reason is. But I'm guessing this, that Jesus is our better than Eliakim. He is the one that conquers all of the self-reliance and is lifted up not out of conquering, but out of humility. And upon him, he is the one that the entire kingdom is based. He is the one who is hung upon a cross so that we could hang ourselves upon him and know we were secure. Jesus is the one that holds the kingdom secure. Our reliance, self-reliance will never hold us secure. And ultimately, all of our rebellion, all of our apathy, all of our conflict comes from a lie that we are self-reliant, that we can do it on our home, on our own. Guys, what do you mean and what is your heart when you say, I am a Christian? Say it with me. I am a Christian. What do you mean and what is your heart when you say that? In our culture, in America, in the West, to say I am a Christian is often an identity, saying I belong to this group of people. It's a calling card. It may even be a boast and can even be in some ways a way to say I bow to no one. It's why the Holy Spirit starts to get usurped a lot of times and perverted by people. I don't have to answer to any other believers or a church. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the authority. That's a misuse of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when we say, I am a Christian, we are saying, I'm boasting. But folks, when we say the truth of, I am a Christian, is to say, I am nothing. I am nothing without Christ. Christ is everything, and I rely solely upon him. In Christ's kingdom, to say, I am a Christian, is to publicly state not only your allegiance to Christ above all else, and to Christ alone, but to publicly state your reliance upon him, his word, his spirit, and his people in order to live in obedience to him. To be part of that kingdom that will remain secure forever. Today, I want you to wrestle with this question. Am I living in self-reliance or do I daily rely on the power of Jesus, his spirit, his word, and his people? Today, I want to ask you the question, if you've come to the end of yourself or you're still relying upon yourself, have you been one who has fallen at his feet and cried out, Lord, this is all I have, and it's nothing. Even my greatest works are filthy rags, but I give it to you. Lord, be my everything. I rely upon you and you alone. Is this what you mean when you say, I am a Christian? I pray that the way we live out our life our lives and our faith each and every day states to the world around us that we are nothing in and of ourselves and we are nothing without Christ. 
we rely on him. We submit to him. And that must be what we mean when we say, I am a Christian.